Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. Open your Bibles with me to first excuse me, to yeah, first Corinthians chapter nine. And just I'm not gonna go back to the scripture we've been looking for, because I'll get I know we'll get sidetracked there. But we're talking about um, Paul's in Philippians two, don't go there, but in Philippians two, Paul says that he, he talked about his determined purpose. And that's what we're talking about. We're talking about our purpose, God's purpose for our lives, God's purpose for this church. God is a God of purpose. Everything God does is purposeful. The stars are hung just where they need to be. You understand that I'm not a physicist, so I can't verify this. But from what I've read and understand, that the earth is in exactly the orbit it needs to be in that if it were in an orbit that was a mile or so closer to the sun or a mile or so further away, we would eventually either pull in, be pulled into the sun and burn up or float away from the sun and freeze. So God's been able to, God's put everything exactly where it is with great precision, so much so that, that our clock, which is what we were to turn ahead this morning, our clock, our scientists base their clock on the, on the throbbing of an atom an atomic clock, the throbbing of an atom is so precise because God made it precise. God's purposeful. And he's not just purposeful within inanimate objects like stars and suns, but he's even more purposeful with human beings which were made in his image. So God has a purpose for your life. And we've been looking over the last few weeks at the Apostle Paul's cry of his heart that, that he would know Christ, be found in him, not having a righteousness that was of his own, but a righteousness that came through faith in Christ, came from God by faith in Christ, and that he might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering that may be conformed to his death. And he said, not that I've already attained it, but I press on. I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus laid hold of me. That's Philippians chapter 2. And we stopped there and looked for the last few weeks as that Paul knew that Christ laid hold of him. He didn't lay hold of Christ. And by the way, he didn't, you didn't lay hold of Christ either. You're here today because he laid hold of you. He reached out, and in some cases, Paul said he arrested him. He grabbed him. In some cases, he fought things to get to you, and some of those things he fought were you and your objections and your concerns. But the point is, he laid hold of your life. In John 15, Jesus said to his disciples, he reminds them at the end, you didn't choose me, I chose you. That's comforting to know that he that knows us perfectly still chose us. When you submit an application for a job and put a resume in, you know, there's whole techniques and you can go online, I guess, and you can find people that will help you put a resume together because they want it to look attractive so that it gets attention. They want it to be positive so that when the perspective employer reads it, they'll say, wow, this is somebody I want. So there may be some things we leave off. There may be some things we have to put in there, but we kind of word them in a way that it looks a little more in our favor than against us. But imagine if you sat down with a prospective employer and they could just see your whole life. They knew everything you'd ever thought, everything you'd ever did, everything about you they knew immediately. You wouldn't need to put a resume in. Well, God's like that. God knows everything you've ever thought. He knows everything you ever will think. He knows everything you've done, everything you should have done you didn't do. He knows all about you. He knows things about you you don't know. Because the Word of God says in Hebrews that the Word of God can separate the difference between the thoughts and intents of your heart. 
That's how precise the Word of God can get. God knows everything about you. And knowing everything about you, He still chose you. Because He didn't choose you because of anything about you. I had the Lord wake me up about a month ago in the middle of the night and says, you know, I don't love you because there's anything lovable about you. No, that was freeing. He says, I love you because it's my nature. God loves you not because you're lovable. God loves you because that's His nature to love. So you don't have to measure up to His love. You don't have to keep going doing what you thought you did so He'd love you. There's pressure in that. He just loves you as you are, knowing everything about you. But He didn't just love you. He chose you for a purpose. He laid hold of you. And Paul said, I have determined my purpose in life is to lay hold of what He laid hold of me for. We talked last week that... God's side is He's laid hold of you. Now we need to lay hold of the same purpose on our side that He laid hold of for us. And that's what we've been looking at. And Paul says to do this, he said, I haven't attained this. I haven't arrived there. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind. We talked about that. Letting go of your failures and of your successes. Letting go of the hurts of the past. Letting go of whatever was relationships or marriages or ministries before that failed. Let it go. Let yesterday go. Forgetting what lies behind. Paul had the memory of it, but he didn't let that affect him going forward. Because if you hold on to the past, it will keep you from pressing forward. It will slow you down. Let, let go of your successes because they're gone. This Super Bowl for the Patriots is over. Everything's focused on the next effort. And it didn't last long. You know, it lasts for a couple of days, and now everything starts planning for the next one. So forgetting what lies behind, we press on towards the upward call. God's call is always upward. The upward call of God that's been given to us in Christ Jesus. So God, the creator of the universe, God, who lives in glory and majesty, has chosen you for a purpose for your life. And it doesn't matter how old you are or how young you are. Because we live in a world that has a system that says, well, you know, at this age you should be doing this such, at this age you should be doing such and such, you know, and you get into your, your golden years and you need to slow down and, you know, your goal is to finish, well, I did what my, I earned a living, I raised a family, and now I can't wait to just sit on the beach in Florida. That's not why we live our life. My wife and I were talking about because we're at, about at that age. And it's like, you know, and, 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 and she was talking about this. And, we've, you know, there's, you've got to make adjustments and plans. There are different phases to your life. But I'm changing the way I think about my life. Is my, life is to, is my life is to complete my assignment. And that assignment may change from time to time and phase to phase. But I'm not here to get to the point where, phew, I've done my work and now I can just sit and enjoy the rest of my life. The enjoyment of life... And the enjoyment of the fullness of life is in finishing your course. Paul says, I finished my course. I fought, my fight. I fought the fight of faith. And I've done it with joy. And if you read some of the things he went through, you, you've got to find where was that joy coming from. The joy came from knowing I finished what I was set here to do. My goal is to stand before the Lord and hear those words. Well done. Good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master, of your Lord. 
to know, to hear that I was faithful to do what he called me to do, whatever that may be for whatever phase of life that may be in. So we need to renew our minds when we get up in the morning. I'm living my life today for what Christ has called me to live. And that'll take you on an amazing adventure. There's no greater joy. There's no greater thrill. There's no greater adventure in life than living your life on purpose for his purpose for your life. And we've looked at Matthew 7 where Jesus said, says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, but you don't do the will of my Father? You don't live your life for him, but you call me Lord, Lord, but you live your life for your own purposes. So there's a, there's a, there's a fulfillment in this. There's a satisfaction because you're doing what you were made to do. You're doing what you were made to do. I've had people say, do you, you know, do you miss being a lawyer? No, well, not at all. Because I'm doing what I was made to do. When I was a lawyer, I knew I was doing something that I learned how to do, but somewhere inside of me, it just... But the first time I stood in a pulpit and opened my mouth and the Word of God came out of my mouth, I knew that's what I was made to do. It was the difference of night and day. I was doing what I was made to do. Are there challenges? Are there frustration? Absolutely. But there's a satisfaction in my heart that I'm doing what I was made to do. What were you made to do? What was this church made to do? So we need to set that as our goal, as our focus, that we would lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus laid hold of us. And that's what we've been looking at. Then last week we went over to see how Paul did this. First of all, he let go of the past. He forgot what was lying behind. He pressed on. Pressing implies effort. It's not, it's not just sitting on a car and coasting, or it's not coasting. Pressing means you've got obstacles pushing against you. Pressing means the, 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 the crowd's going the other direction. It's like swimming upstream or paddling your canoe upstream. It requires effort, and if you stop exerting effort, you'll begin to float in the other direction. And so it requires a pressing every day, a pressing in. Pressing against what presses against you. Pressing when you feel like it. Pressing when you don't feel like it. Because if you stop pressing, you'll go backwards. And that's what we're going to look at today. So the next one we looked at was in 2 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul also talking about his purpose. We're going we're gonna to start in verse 19. But before we get there, he talks about why he preaches... He's talking about his call. His purpose was to preach the gospel, to bring the gospel to the Gentile world, the world that did not have a covenant with God, the world that was not of Israel. And he talks about, I made myself to the weak I became weak, to the strong I became strong, to the mighty I became... In other words, I adjusted my methods to the people that I came to reach so that I might, by some means, save some. His goal was to bring the gospel to people that had never heard it before. To bring the good news of Jesus Christ, that he died for them to pay for their sins, and that through faith in him they could have eternal life and forgiveness of their sins. And everything he did was with that purpose in mind. And we're not going to look at the day, but he talked about, you know, woe to me if I don't do it. It's not, woe, God's going to be mad at me. It's within him, within himself. So we're going to look today at his focus and how he got his focus on his purpose. We're going to pick up in verse 19. For though I'm free from all men, he talked about his freedom, because 
I'll, go, I'll get, get there. I've made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. To the Jews, I become a Jew that I might win the Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, that I may win those who are under the law. To those who are without the law, that's the Gentiles, I've been as one without the law. Not being without the law towards God, but under the law towards Christ. That I might win those who are without the law. Notice in each case, he did what he did so that he might win them to Christ. Verse 22, to the weak I became as weak that I might win the weak. He didn't become weak, he became as they were. And there's a, there's a method in this. Well, let me finish and then I'll go back to the purpose of this. I became all things to all men that I might by all means save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake that I may be a partaker of it with you. So Paul's saying here, my determined purpose was to win souls, to bring the gospel to people and have them receive Christ to win souls. And to do that, I came to where there were. To the weak, I became weak. He wasn't weak, but he came to where they were. He adjusted his approach. He adjusted his technique, but he never adjusted his method so that he could reach them. He went to where they were. He didn't come into a marketplace and say, I've been sent here by the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't you know I'm an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ? You need to come and listen to me. He went to where they were. Isn't it interesting? Jesus did the same thing. He went to where they were. Maybe the reason the church, and I'm just talking about this church, because generally the church, the real church, the Christ-believing, Bible-toting, tongue-talking church is not growing. Most of the church growth is by transfer from one church to another church. Well, I like the music there. I like the pastor there. They're a little younger there. The music is too loud here. So we move somewhere where we're more comfortable, and this church goes down and this church grows. That's not the growth of the body. That's not the growth of the body. Maybe the reason is because we're sitting here expecting them to come. Instead of doing what Jesus did and Paul did, he went to where they were. And this is what God's calling us to do. This is what God's calling... I'm getting ahead of myself, but it's God's calling us to go. If you, We're going to look at the Great Commission as we, in the next few weeks, actually for a while. And, and every one of them is to go. It's not sit. Go. And the, the cute expression, but it's so true. Two-thirds of God's name is go. And God, the, the Great Commission never tells us to go and come back. That doesn't mean come back to church. But our whole life is going. Going into all the world. Going to where they are. And not just going to where they are, but physically where they are, but going to where they are emotionally, going to where... Meet them where they are. Remember a few weeks ago we talked about this scripture that, that kind of haunts me. And it's, it's, it's that the Bible says, and the sinners and the prostitutes came to sit at his feet and hear what he has to say. And the question that haunts me is, why don't they come in here to hear what we have to say? Why don't they beat down the door on Sunday to get in here to hear what we have to say? Maybe there was something about him we're not representing to them. They were drawn to him. And it wasn't as if he compromised but he loved them. He went to where they were. 
He went to where they were physically. He went to where they were hurting. He went to where their needs were. And he met them at their point of need and cared about them. And then they listened to him. And then they listened to him. Paul says, I do what I do so that I may win as many as I can win. This is his determined purpose. And this is the reason and the only reason that the church exists. Everything else exists in the church to support that purpose. And we'll be, that's where we're headed this year, to talk about that. Okay. Verse, 30, verse 24. Do you not know, and we ended up at this point last week, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And the reference here, of course, is to the Olympic Games, which they were very familiar with. But, of course, the Olympic Games in Paul's day was very different than the big production and spectacle and money-making project that it is today. Very simple. They came out to a track or to a field where there, was, there may have been seats there, and they ran the typical, the traditional Olympic races, and they threw the javelin and did those kind of activities. And, and, and the, the prize, there was no gold medal. There was no silver medal. There was no bronze medal. The prize was a laurel wreath, a wreath that was formed out of laurel branches. And the winner would come and stand in front of whoever the ruling, the highest ranking authority was that was at those games, and would kneel, and the authority would take this laurel wreath and place that on their head, and that was their reward. And what Paul's saying here is, what he's about to talk about, was that they all ran, they all trained, they all did what they had to do to run a race where they all knew ahead of time, only one of them's going to win. Only one of them's going to win. And yet they paid the price. They did what was necessary. That was their focus. Was If some, nobody else was going to win, I'm going to be that winner. And what Paul's about to say is the race you and I are in, the goal that you and I have been given, we can all win. There's a reward and a prize for all of us, but we must run the race, and we must finish the race to obtain the prize. Okay. Don't you know that all, run, that all who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? So run in such a way that you may obtain it. Now, you're going to live your life one way or the other. This church is going to go on one way or the other. Every one of us has a beginning date and an end date. Your beginning date's already been determined. That's your birth date. But if they were to put a tombstone for you in a graveyard, they have your opening date, but we don't have your closing date yet. All of us have a life to live, and we're going to live it one way or the other. And what he's challenging them today to do is if you're going to live your life, live it on purpose. Live, it will change your life to begin to live your life on purpose. I've mentioned before several times that Pastor Rick Warren wrote a best-selling book that was exploded called The Purpose-Driven Life. And all he did was lay hold of this lacking principle in people's lives that there's a purpose for my life. Purpose gives your life value. It gives your life meaning. It, gives you, it helps you to make decisions, and that's what we're going to look up to today. The decisions that we must make because we have a purpose. Without a purpose, 
you'll flounder. You'll be unrestrained. You'll have no reason for, do, for, for doing what you do. You just do it because... And so many people live their life from one day to the next. Well, I got through Sunday. You know, and I'm doing the same thing. We get, whew, just get through this winter. My whole goal is to get... I'm spending my life. If my goal is to get through this winter, what's going to happen when we get through it? Then, okay, we got a few weeks of, of, of spring. Now we got the summer. But, oh, now it's hot in the summer. I can't wait for the fall when it cools off. And now we get to the fall. So, yeah, I know what's coming. I know what follows the fall. The winter's coming, so I can't wait till we get through the winter. And we spend our life. I can't wait to get through this. I can't wait to... So my goal is to just get through things. What happens when we get to the end and we've gotten through it all? And we look back and say, what was my life for? It was to get through things. I made it through 60 winners. I made it through 70 winners. Wow. What's that going to mean? I survived. What's that going to mean? Is your goal in life to survive? Isn't it better if God gives us a goal? Because if God gives us a goal, not only is it meaningful, not only will it fulfill you, but all of His grace and all of His anointing and all of His favor is behind that goal. Whereas if we choose a goal for our lives, for ourselves, in many ways it may oppose His goal. It may, at least it won't be in line with His goal. And this is true for church, because the church is made up of us, of goal seekers. So we need to have the same goal. Notice how often the early church, it says they were of one mind and they were of one accord. Does that mean they all stood in church and said the same thing over and over? No, they had the same goal in mind. So they had the same purpose, not only for their lives, but for coming together. And you've heard me talk about this before. Every time the doors are open here, however many num- come in here, 700, 800, whatever it is, come in the door, we may have 800 different purposes of why people are here. But if we can be called by the voice of God to one purpose, coming in here for one purpose, Genesis 11 is a story of people that were ungodly that had one purpose in mind and they spoke one message in mind and they decided to build a tower up to heaven, get themselves up to heaven by what they built. And God looked down at what they were doing and says, I've got to come down and do something. Because they are of one mind and of one voice, nothing they decide to do will be stopped from them. So he had to come down and confuse their language so that they couldn't communicate and agree with each other and they couldn't keep the same purpose because they couldn't hear the same voice. Purpose is so critical to our lives and to this church and to every church. So Paul says, if you're going to run the race... If you're going to live your life, run your race or live your life in such a way that you'll win. Why run if you're not going to win? And the good news is, I mean, as I told you, my experience as a a great track star. (laughs) I think there was one race I didn't come in last. And I considered that a victory. (laughs) Well, we had to take some sport and that was a non-contact sport, so I was, I was not very athletic back then. Uh, not that I am now, but uh, I, my point is, I ran the races, but I never had any expectation of winning. Because I'd look at these sleek, muscular guys 
you know, and I knew before the race started, I knew I wasn't going to be able to win. So it affected my attitude. I just show up. I didn't train the way they trained. I just showed up because I had to show up because I knew there's no, I had no hope of winning. So why try? And this is what Paul's saying here. Every one of us, not only has a hope of winning this race, but we have the promise that God is with you to strengthen you, to bring you through and to carry you. All you've got to do is a few things, and one of them is to purpose to win the race, God's race. So run in such a way that you're going to live. Live your life in such a way that when you come to the end, you'll hear from Him, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Why is it the joy of the Lord? Because He ran His race well. He finished His race. And we'll look at that down the road. But right now we're looking at Paul, the Apostle Paul, as an example of this. All right. Run in such a way that you'll win. Verse 25. Not everyone who competes for the prize is... Now, every, everyone who competes for the prize is temperate or self-disciplined in all things. And we do it to obtain a perishable crown. The laurel wreath would, just, would eventually dry up. But we are doing it, as Christians, for an imperishable crown. Therefore, I run this way... Not with uncertainty. He's going to change the, the metaphor here. I fight not as one who beats the air. In other words, I, when I throw a punch, I have a goal as my punch. I was never a fighter, but I was taught that, that a fighter's punch has purpose. So you've sized your opponent up, and you realize, well, wait a minute, his reach, his arms are longer than mine, and, you know, his weakness... He's got great stamina. He's long-lasting. So instead of trying to reach his face because my arms aren't quite long enough to deliver there, what I'll do is I'll start hitting him in the ribs. Now, one hit to the ribs isn't going to do it. But eventually, if I get through to his ribs long enough, it's going to begin to take the wind out of him, and it's going to be harder for him to breathe. It becomes harder for him to breathe than it becomes he begins to lose his stamina. Maybe not in round three or four, but around round eight or nine or ten, he's going to begin to get winded. So my point is that my, I, based on what, who I am and my opponent is, I have a strategy for my punches. I don't just go out there throwing punches. Every punch is purposeful. Every punch is purposeful done with the strategy in mind with the knowledge of my opponent so that I may at the, at the sound of that last gong I may be the one standing and he's the one on the ground we wrestle not against flesh and blood but against principalities and powers and rulers in heavenly places okay again it's purpose now how does he do that how does he run in such a way that's for the purpose verse 27 I discipline my body and bring it under subjection, lest having preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. I want to talk about that verse for a minute, and then we're going to go into chapter 10, which is an example that is put in there for us. The word punish or discipline here is a word actually that's kind of watered down. And I mentioned this, I think, last week. The, 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 he's talking about boxers now as the, as the metaphor. One of the things a boxer has to be careful of is if he gets hit in the face too much, in the chin, it will tend to swell. And as his cheeks begin to swell, it closes off his eyes so he can't see. And obviously it's a very dangerous thing 
to be in the ring with Muhammad Ali or somebody like that that can knock you out with one, knock you into next Sunday with one punch and you can't see him. And so what they try to do is toughen their face. Well, what they used to do in the Greek, the Grecian, um, you know, the, yeah, the Greek games, Olympic games, they didn't wear boxing gloves, is they would take, uh, uh, to train, they would take a leather glove or leather, wrap leather around their hands with little rough things or stones in it, and they'd beat their own face. Be careful here. They'd beat their own face, and when they beat it, it would swell up and toughen up. And I talked to you last week, remember, about my time working in a door factory? where I started out handling plywood and, and when I started I'd come home and my fingers were bleeding and with splinters in them but by the end of the summer I could stick pins and needles in them and I couldn't feel anything because I developed thick calluses why? because they, they were being toughened by that contact and so Paul says I do that to myself I keep my flesh under I discipline my own flesh I do it with the purpose because this is what we're going to look at today is how your flesh gets you in trouble and why this is important. Because here we are talking about, you know, wonderful, lofty goals for life. I'm going to come to the end of my life and I'm going to have finished everything God has for me to do. And I'm going to stand before Him and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter, in my, enter into the joy of your Lord. And that's what we have as our goal out there. And that's wonderful. But we're talking about how do I get there? <clears throat> and when you have a lofty goal, you think, well, I just do lofty things. I'll do great and wonderful things, you know. I'll be a great evangelist. But what Paul's going to teach us here is the road from where I am to that well-done, good and faithful servant is made of a series of little decisions that we make. The Bible says it's the little foxes that spoil the vine. Satan is a deceiver. We're learning on Wednesday nights when we're talking about spiritual warfare that we're to stand against the wiles of the devil, not the power of the devil, his tricks and deceptions. So in the course of running our race, in the course of finishing our goal, retaining the goal, we have to be aware that we have an adversary, and the adversary knows our weaknesses. He knows what to play on us. And he's not, because you know enough, he's not stupid enough to come to you in a red suit with a pitchfork saying, I've come to, 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 to oppose you. He's going to use things you like. He's going to be a deceiver. And we're going to look at an example of that. Notice Paul says, with all this I've done for others, I have to be careful myself lest I somehow fail the mark. That's what the word disqualify here means, is autochemus, which is to fall short of the test, to not win the race. All right, let's go on. I knew that would be popular. But it is. It is good. Now, understand this. When this was written, Paul wrote this letter, he didn't come to the end of chapter 9 and says, let's take a break. I've written nine chapters. I need to take a break because I've got a few more I've got to write. No, this is one letter. Actually, if you were to look at the original manuscripts, it looks like one long run-on sentence. There were no punctuation marks. And it was all uppercase letters. So the, the translators, for purpose, our purposes, so I could tell you where to turn, they broke it up into, into chapters and verses to make it, that, which in their mind helped to, because it was a natural break in thoughts. And that's pretty much true here. But it's the same context. It's the same message that Apostle Paul is talking about here. Verse t- chapter 10. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all of our fathers were under a cloud and all passed through the sea. 
What he's talking about here, he's now going to use Israel as an example, the nation of Israel, and he's referring to that time when Israel was delivered out of Egypt, out of the bondage of Egypt, because they cried out for deliverance, and God sent Moses to lead them out. We've talked about the story before, how they parted the Red Sea, God parted the Red Sea for them, brought them forth on dry land, when Chariot... Pharaoh's chariots tried to follow them and destroy them. The sea came in and swallowed them up and devoured them. They're brought, in, but remember, God had a. He was taking them out of Egypt to take them someplace. God never gets you out of something. God's goal is always to get you to something. To get you to something, He may have to take you out of something. But He's not a God of the negative. He doesn't deliver you from something. He delivers you to something. Now, to get to it, you may have to let go of something. To enter in somewhere, you may have to leave somewhere else, which is why you've got to forget what lies behind. So God's purpose, and this is what we're talking about, God's purpose for Israel was to get them out of the bondage that they were in in Egypt, where they were being, they were being pressurized, pressured to worship Egyptian gods. God wanted them, they were His own people. God had a covenant with them through Abraham, which was hundreds of years before, and God says, they're my people, they're my firstborn, I want to rescue them, and I want to bring them into a land that I'm going to give them where they can worship me and honor me, and they can be a representative of me to the world of what it's like to have God as your father, God as your king. That was God's, pur- God's purpose for them, was to get them out of their bondage and into a land that God had promised them, a land of blessing and prosperity. But not just that, it's where God wanted them for God's purpose also. And that's the context here, and that's an example for us because that's what God's doing with us. He brought us out of the world, out of the systems of the world, out of the idols of the world, out of the, out of the, the fleshliness of the world, and God has a place He wants to take us. And it's not heaven. It's a place here on this earth of walking with Him in the Spirit walking with Him in victory, walking with Him to carry out His purpose, His purpose for your life, His purpose for the church. But between Egypt and the promised land, there were obstacles. And that's where we're somewhere in there. And so God's, the message that Paul's using about these games and purpose and what he had to do with his own life to make sure that he finished his course, he's now going to use Israel as an example because they didn't finish their course. They didn't enter into the purpose that God had for them. They came very close, but they failed the test. They didn't get in, not because God didn't want them in, because they turned away from what God offered them. And he's going to tell us here the lessons. He's telling us this story because he's going to tell us this is, this is what we need to learn. This is an example of for the church. So when he's talking about the ble- the, the, who these are, this is who he's talking about. Moreover, I don't want you to be unaware that all of our fathers, that's the fathers in their faith, that's the children of Israel, were under a cloud and all passed through the sea. The cloud is the God's presence that led them. When they came out of Egypt, they were led by a pillar of fire at night and a cloud at the daytime. That's what came between them and the Egyptian chariots while they were waiting at the Red Sea. That's what parted the sea. And that's what led them through the whole wilderness experience, was this pillar of cloud by day and a a pillar of fire by night. 
And so they were all under or being led by the same cloud. What he's going to say here is they all had the same thing in common. They all had the same opportunity. They all went to the same church. They all heard the same word. They were all baptized into Moses and in the cloud. That, just, that word baptized there means they were joined to. They were joined to Moses. They were joined to Moses' destiny in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food. That's the manna that came from heaven. They all ate the same food. They all came to the same church. They all heard the same preaching. They all drank from the same spiritual drink, which was the water that came out of the rock. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. The rock that the water came out of represents Christ. He is the rock. And He is the source of living water. He is the Word. So that what He's saying here is they all have the same opportunity. God provided the same nourishment for them physically and spiritually. God provided the same protection for them physically and spiritually. They all had the same opportunity. But let's see what the difference was. Verse 5. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things become, became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they did. Let me explain to you what happened, because I know some of you may not be familiar with this story, because I realize we have people here in the church now that know all kinds of things from the Bible, and we have... Many people that are new and they really don't know a lot. What happened was the children of Israel, God's plan was originally to take them on only a two-week journey from Egypt to the promised land. But God said, I couldn't take you by the short route because by the short route you would see the Canaanites. When you saw the Canaanites, you'd be afraid and you'd run back to Egypt. See, God knows how to get us to the goal. God knows how to get you there. He knows your weaknesses. He knows how you think. And He knows what the obstacles are out there. And if we'll just follow Him, He'll get you around the obstacles. There may be a shorter way that He knows you can't handle, but He'll still get you there. So we had to take Him down through the Sinai Peninsula and then back up on a journey that took them just about a year. And they get to the border of the Promised Land and God sent, they sent spies in. They spent, sent in 12 spies, one from each of the tribes. And they come back. It's in Numbers 13 and 14. They come back with a report saying, everything God said to us about this land is true. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. And all the blessings God said are there. Wow, it's a great place. We brought back a cluster of grapes that are so large that it takes two men hanging them on a pole to carry them. However, there are enemies in the land. There are kings in the land. There are giants in the land. So although God's told us this is where He's called us, this is our destiny, we can't do it. Because we're not strong enough. We're not educated enough. We've not been in Christ long enough. I have these issues in my life. I can't do it. That's too big. It's too obstacle. It's too scary. It's too hard. It's too threatening. And what we've looked at is, what happened is they saw where God called them and then they looked at themselves and said, I can't do that. And so they, shrink, they shrunk back. And they called it, they, they, they called when they back to the people, they said, we can't, God's problem, what God said about it is true, but we can't go in there. And God called it an evil report. It says in Hebrews that they could not enter in because of their unbelief. And he calls that unbelief sin. 
It's not because God didn't give it to them. God had a destiny for them, a purpose for that nation and for every one of those people, but they could not enter in. Not because God kept them, because they would not, because when they saw the obstacles, they were looking at themselves and they pulled back. How did they get there? This is what the Apostle Paul is teaching them, teaching us. That didn't just happen because they woke up on the wrong side of the bed that day when they were at the door of the promised land. You know, everything's gone so well for us, but we're, you know, we just can't do that. No, every day over, these, over this year, they made choices and decisions so that when they got to that opportun- moment of opportunity, they pulled back from it by choices that they made along the journey. And between here today and the end of your life, when you stand before the Lord with what you accomplished for you, with not what you accomplished, but whether you, how well you did the purpose that he had for your life. When I stand before the Lord, not only for the purpose for my life, but I stand before the Lord for his purpose for this church. What I hear is not going to be based on how I acted that day. It's decisions that I made all the way along the line that evil will lead you to a place where you're ready to enter in or will leave you in a place where you shrink back and say, no, I can't do it. Jesus came to his own hometown. Jesus, having raised the dead, having cleansed the lepers, having cast demons out, having opened the eyes of blind and having lame walk, came to his own hometown and it said he could do no mighty works there. He couldn't do them. He wanted to. He wanted to bring them, but he couldn't do it because of their unbelief. They still saw him as the carpenter's son. They still saw him as the little boy that grew up and said, we know who you really are. They couldn't see who he was because they looked at him through natural eyes. And this is the lesson that Paul is saying. This story is in the Bible as an example for us, not just an historical account. There's a lesson in here we need to read, learn. Okay. Well, we won't get through all this today, probably. Verse 6. Now, these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they lusted. So what he's saying here is what got them in trouble was lust. Understand what lust is. Lust is an inordinate, excessive desire. There's nothing wrong with desire if it's a godly desire for good things. It's when that desire is selfish. And when that desire controls you, it ceases from being a desire to a lust. I have to have it. There's pressure in it. I've got to have this. And it doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't, you don't step out of holiness into lust like that. It's a series of mental decisions you make, and you have an adversary who's there to tempt you along the way with the breadcrumbs, saying, here it is. Come on. And here it is. Come on. Just follow me a little bit. Take a little more. Make this decision. You know, Choose this today, choose this today, choose this today, and having no idea where they're leading you. And that's the lesson that the apostle is teaching us here. There's more at stake than what you realize. Now he's going to give us some specific examples. Verse 7. Do not become idolaters as some of them. For as it was written, the people sat down to eat, to drink, and rose up to play. Now, you know, you may think, well, and I used to leave that and say, well, I'm not an idolater. I don't have, you know, I don't have idols in my house, and I don't have statues in my car, and I don't have, you know, 
bathtubs, sort of as Pastor Sam used to say, sideways in my yard. There's not, they're not man-made images that I worship. But what this is referring to is a story in Exodus 32 where the children of Israel were encamped at the base of Mount Sinai. And God called Moses, who was their leader. He was the one they trusted in. He was the one through whom God directed them. He's the one to, God spoke to him and then he told the people what God said to do. And so they were very dependent on Moses. And Moses is called up on that mountain and we now know he was up there 40 days and 40 nights, but they didn't know how long he was going to be up there. And when they come to Aaron, his, Moses' his brother, whom he had left in charge, and says, we don't know what's become of Moses. In other words, we can't see him. We can't see him and we're uneasy because we can't see our leader. Of course, their leader was up talking to God for them, but they couldn't see him. So they said, we're getting anxious. So let's make for us a calf, which was ones they'd seen in Egypt, Let's make for ourselves a calf that we may worship it. And, Mo- and Aaron does that. He takes the jewelry and the things that had been given them so that they could build a tabernacle to worship God. And they melt it all down. And, they, and I love the expression. That came, and says, and out came a calf. I don't know how it happened. It just, it just came out. They fashioned this golden calf. And then they worship it. And Aaron says, behold... This is the God that brought you out of Egypt. They didn't intend to worship that calf as Baal or as Satan or as any of the other named gods of Egypt. They chose to worship that as Elohim who brought them out of Egypt. They had to see their God. This is the problem they have all along. They never learned to walk by faith. They are all, they live their life in their senses. Moses, our servant, we don't know what's happened to him. We can't see him, even though he said, I'd be back. So we have to have a a God we can see. And so they made that God for themselves. And then once that God was made, they had a celebration. That's what it means. It said they sat down to eat and he stood up to play. They threw a, a, a festival, which was not uncommon in a worship time. But they were not doing it to Jehovah, they were doing it to this God that they made. God's angry, sends Moses down. And Moses eventually, I can't tell the time to go through the whole story, Moses has to plead for their lives because God's fed up. Idolatry angers God. It's an insult to him to make our own God when he's the God that made us. And he comes down, but see, it's not just little statues. It's, it's things we build into our lives that we trust in more than we trust in God. Because we can see them. Because they satisfy our senses. Because our senses, I know that so-and-so's here. I know that this is true in my life. Whatever it is, you know, let the Spirit of God make, show that for you. But it's something that, that I, I make in my life as something I put my trust in. But it's someone or something. It can be people. An idol can be a person. It can be your children. It can be your spouse can be your job. It's something that you put your trust in that you can see. But it takes faith to do that with a God I can't see and just trust his word. And this is the problem why they couldn't enter in a year later because they never developed their faith to do just what God said in spite of what they saw. Okay, we've got to go on to the next one. Any one of these we could dwell on. Verse 8. 
nor commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell. What happens there is that's referring to a story. It's in, and we're not going to turn there, but it's in, um, it's in Numbers 25, a story where the children of Israel um, come out. They're right on the doorsteps to the promised land. They're in Moab. And it says in the first few verses that they played the harlot with the prostitutes of Moab. They're sitting there. They're waiting to go in. And now they start, they start blending in, living together with the Moabites. And the men start seeking out the Moabite prostitutes. And God gets angry because what they're doing is they're making a physical covenant with people that were not pure in God's eyes. That, they had no co- that he had no covenant with. They're sitting around. Maybe they're bored. I don't know what it is. And because, because, they, they, because they did that physically, then they began to take their idols into their houses. See, the, 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 well, let's go to James chapter 1. We, we're not going to finish this today. Let's go to James chapter 1 because here's the process described. This is what I really want you to see. Verse 12. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he's been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. Each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires. Anybody remember Flip Wilson? What was his phrase? The devil made me do it. That's cute, isn't it? It takes all the responsibility off of me, doesn't it? I don't know. The calf just came out. I have no idea how it happened. I was just walking down the road, and it was this thing I just had to have. So the devil pushed me, is what he used to say. Well, the devil just pushed me in. That's not what the Bible says happens. We're drawn away by our own desires. This is why Paul says, I keep my body under There's nothing wrong with desires as long as you realize you've got to be in control of them or the Spirit of God has got to be in control of them or your Spirit's got to be in control of them. But when this is how it begins. When I don't keep my desires under control, here's what happens. Here's what happens. Oh, Lord. He's drawn away by his own desires and enticed... The process is I'm drawn away. Now when I now I'm drawn, I'm just to go, it's like I go off to take a look at this. And now I get there, I start thinking about it, I start desiring. The more I think about it, the more I want it. I, I won't go there. Well, it's just going to take a while. But, but, but mental pictures, there's sometimes, you know, I'll think about, you know what? This is what I was going to say. Sometimes it happens second service. I'm up here in the middle of it, and the anointing's flowing. I'm thinking, you know what? I wonder what we're going to eat after service. <laughs> Am I the only one that's ever thought that? I wonder what we're going to eat after service. What am I going to have? You know, there's nothing wrong with that, but if I dwell on that, then I, my, start, my, my, my mouth starts watering. I begin to get pictures in my mind, 
And what happens is all the things that God built in you for creativeness, all the things God built in you to do His will now begin to be used to distract you. So the enemy never comes at you with something that you don't, won't tempt you. He knows your weaknesses. He knows your weaknesses and he'll come to you and just, you know what, Eve, this would just taste so good. Just, and she, what did she say? She said it looked good. Her senses, he uses your senses and then he uses your imagination or you do. Because the devil can't make you do anything against your will. And then verse 15 says, When desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. So my point here with 1 Corinthians, we can go back there. The point is this. In verse 7, it's idolatry. It's anything that we trust in. More than we trust in God. Here it's fornication. You may never commit fornication in your, in your, with your body. But the, you've got to be aware that temptation's always there. And it wasn't just the fornication with their body. The decision to satisfy the lust of their, those men's flesh then led them to take those prostitutes' idols into their house. See, when you give way to something and you don't have control over it, it always leads to something more. It's like the, the fix you know, the, the addict's fix. I just, need, I just need one pill. I just need this. And that one never ultimately satisfies, so I've got to have another one. And it's a bait. We, can't, we talked a number of years ago about fishing for people. Well, the devil fishes for people with bait. He, he tempts you with something that looks, oh, this is going to, I just need this now. I just need this now. And then you take it and you're hooked. And now you have to have it. And you have to have more. And once you have to have more, then he begins to say, well, you've got to control what you're going to do to get the more. And that's not just true with drugs and alcohol. It's true with sex. It's true with anything that's lust of our flesh. It never, and it doesn't satisfy. We're going to look at that. There's a scripture down the road we'll look at. that it, We chase after empty things. Empty things. Verse 9. Nor let us tempt Christ or test Christ, as some of them also tempted him and were destroyed by serpents. That refers to Numbers 25, uh, excuse me, Numbers uh, 12. When, when they spoke against Moses, the children of Israel spoke against Moses. This was early on. They said, and they really spoke against God because they, were, they got out in the wilderness and their, 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 their lunch ran out. Their, you know, their, their, their canteens ran out. Their coolers ran out, and they ran out of food. And they, they started, instead of trusting that the God who led them out, the God who parted the sea, the God who destroyed their enemy in front of them, like he never thought that they needed food or water, but instead of trusting God to provide that or even giving him that opportunity, they start complaining. And they said it would have been better for us back in Egypt. And they talk about the food of Egypt. The leeks and the onions. That's all they remember. They don't remember the whips of the taskmasters. They don't, matter, they don't remember the bricks that they had to carry on their back. They don't remember the, 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 the law, the, no freedom. They don't remember any of the things they cried out to be delivered from. All they remember is the taste in their mouth of the food. 
tastes are so important because they leave memories. Smells are so important. I told you last week of a, a smell, a, a, a perfume I smelled a number of years ago that instantly reminded me of my grandmother who's been dead for 30-some years. Why? Because those memories are the, the memories of the taste of that food in Egypt. Now remember, to us, Egypt represents the world we've been delivered out of. And this world out there offers to us things that tantalize and, and stimulate our senses. I have to have this. I've got to have the latest of this. I, I don't want to get off on this. I don't have time, and I don't want to, I don't want to have all the ladies get up and leave. But, but there are programs on television where all they do is sh they're trying to sell you clothing and makeup and things like that, and they just all over and over how wonderful this is. They bring out all the models who show you all this thing, and there's nothing wrong with looking at it. But if that's all you look at, then it's going to stir, you're going to, you're going to have to, I have to have that. That's, they're always telling this is the latest, this is the best. They have to keep telling you this is the latest and the best so that you can buy new ones. Because if you have just what you need, you don't need to buy anymore, and they, then they'll go out of business. So they need to keep coming up with new, new styles, new things like this. And there's nothing wrong with being stylish. I'm not talking about that. It's when we lust after, I have to have it. In order to be who I am, in order to be happy, I have to have the latest of this. I have to have it. I'm not in control. I'm, and this is the issue. The issue is not the food. It's not the second piece of pie. The issue isn't... Well, there's some things the issue is. Sex out of marriage, that's an issue. But the issue is I can't control it. I'm not in control. Because if I'm not in control, who is? If I'm not in control, who is? And remember what this is all about. And the reason many Christians are not in control is because they don't have a purpose for their life. The reason that speed skater gets up at four in the morning to go to the rink to strap those skates on when everybody else is sleeping in, the reason that speed skater doesn't eat the stuff that all their friends eat, the reason that speed skater goes to bed at a decent hour, the reason that speed skater takes is because they've got one goal in mind. They're, they're thinking of whatever that... 2016 or 2018, whenever it is, they're thinking of that one race and where the difference may be a, 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 a 16th of a second between the gold medal and the silver medal. And they're keeping their body under. They're, they're keeping control of their appetites because they've got a goal in mind. And Paul says, they do all of that and only one of them is going to win it. How much more should we, who have an eternal goal, with an eternal reward, and we can all win. And God's all on our side. We're going to look down the road. Hebrews 12 says, the ones that have gone on before us that have finished their race, they're cheering you on. They say, come on, you can do it, you can do it, you can do it, because we're all part of the same race. Keep it in mind. Don't be distracted. Don't be discouraged. If you stumble and fall, we're going to look, God, forgive it. Get back up and start again. Leave, leaving behind, forgetting what lies behind. It may have been the second piece of cake you had yesterday. Leave it behind. Start again today. Press. 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 No matter how many times you've stumbled, get up. Press again. Because I guarantee this. If you sit down, you won't finish. If you keep on pressing, the Spirit of God will come behind you and He'll take hold together with you and He'll strengthen you and enable you to finish your course.
with joy. Enable you to finish your course with joy. One last one. Verse 10. Nor complain as some of them complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Over and over again when God provided for them, over and over again when God delivered them, they were not thankful. But they complained. Why did you bring us out here to die? We had it better in Egypt. Imagine what that must have sounded like to God. The miracles he did. Just to get them out. The miracles he did to bring them to where they were. And they continued to complain what they didn't have because they they remembered how wonderful it was in Egypt. The world tries to lure us, and the God of this world uses it to try to lure us back into the world. He couldn't keep you from getting saved, but what he wants to do is keep you from finishing your course. What he wants you to do is keep you from doing God's will. What he wants to do is keep you from influencing others. So he entices you with the systems of the world, with the appetites of the world. He's enticing us, so that, and he's speaking to our flesh speaking to our appetites, whatever the appetite may be. He's speaking to it. And he'll speak through the methods of the world to draw us back into Egypt to remember, wow, before I was saved, wasn't it? We used to do those things. You know what? And I've had, I've had thoughts come to my mind that I've had 30, 30 years ago I was freed of. And it's like, you know what? You used to be able to do that before. You can't do that anymore. Poor John. You had it so good. Well, I had it so good I was going to hell. <laughs> you remember that those memories of what that tasted like those memories of those things are there and he pulls on those things and you, what I'm saying is this just watch your thinking the more you think about it you're begin to, you begin to then get enticed by it enticed as the draw begins to draw you and then as it begins to draw you if you give way to that draw eventually it will enslave you and you, it will birth in you the sin will birth in you And if that is not repented of and checked, it ends up you don't finish your race as Israel did not finish their course. That generation, the next generation made it. I'll finish with this verse and we'll end. Therefore, let him who sticks he stands take heed lest he fall. Now I better leave you with the next verse. Here's the good news. There's no temptation which has overtaken you except as is common to man. The devil has no special tricks. You're not the worst sinner that's ever lived. You're not the only person that's ever had trouble with controlling your appetite. You're not the only person that's ever... In fact, there's no, there's no, there's no sin or lust in this room right now that's not common to all of us in one degree or another. The devil doesn't have some special temptation to use against you. He had no special temptation to use against Christ. He has no special temptation to use against you. So know this about the temptation. There's no temptation that comes against you that's not common to everybody. This is why it's so important to be open with each other. This is one of the reasons for the connect groups is so that we have a place of sharing with each other so we can come together and and, and support one another. But God is faithful. Say that with me. God is faithful. Say that again. God is faithful. The devil wants you to look at you and try harder. Take your eyes off of you and look at how faithful God is. 
The reason they couldn't get into the promised land is they were looking at how weak they were. God is faithful. Who is able? God is faithful who is able to help you endure it and to give you a way of escape. So whatever you're dealing with today, understand this, that it's not unique to you. Understand that God is faithful. Even if you've been unfaithful, God is faithful. God is faithful to deliver you if you'll just call upon Him, if you'll just face it. Don't leave here feeling condemned. Because if you leave here feeling condemned and discouraged, you haven't heard what the Spirit of God is saying today. He just wants us aware that these are not innocent decisions that we make. And what He really wants us aware is if you begin to accept the goal God has for your life, these things become easier to defeat. These things become easier to resist. That's not going to get me there, so I don't want that in my life. That's not going to bring me to that end that I want. That's, I don't need that in my life. It's only distracting you. God is faithful. God is faithful. God is faithful. That with the temptation, He didn't bring it to you. He will give you the strength to endure it, and He will provide the way out of it. Let's pray. Father, we thank You today. Lord, sometimes the truth presses right in on the parts of us that hurt. But You do that because You love us. And your will and your desire is that all of us stand at the finish line and hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. I pray for all of us here today, Lord, me as well as everyone else, that whatever it is that may be in our life, whatever it is that may be hindering our course, whatever it is, Lord, that you will open our eyes to see it. Help us to repent of it and strengthen us, Lord, because you're faithful. You who promised are faithful. You're faithful to help us, not just endure it and get through it, but to find the way out of the temptation. Lord, let us not be like Israel, but let us be like the second generation that enters in and occupies the promised land. In Jesus' name, amen.